Hi and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 71 and I hope you've all eaten your breakfast today folks because today I have Dr. Javier Gonzalez and we're going to be getting into all things breakfast today. Hey Javier, how are you doing? Hello, very well, thanks. So um, we saw each other only a few days ago. Um, you kindly came and lectured to us on the ISSN deployment program that I run. And uh, there was um, a number of lectures you did which were incredible um, in many ways. I don't just say that, that. There were a number of topics that I found extremely interesting and highly topical which will which we will get into uh today and um i'm sure the listeners will will really enjoy this episode um but before we get into that why don't you um tell the listeners uh um just exactly who you are sure um so i'm a lecturer in human physiology um, in the department for health at the university of bath and I teach on programs relating to sport and exercise science and physical activity and health. Um, I did an undergraduate degree in sport and exercise science, followed by a master's in exercise physiology. And then I transitioned more into nutrition. So I did a PhD in human nutrition and metabolism and a postdoc in metabolism also. So that was most of that was done in Nottingham and Newcastle. Um, but then I was drawn down to Bath for this job as a lecturer. And uh, it was a great, it's a great place to be because there's also a colleague who's also interested in, in breakfast-related research. So that's James Betts. And it, it's great to come down and um, work together with him on these types of projects. So it's got nothing to do with the fact that Bath is an extremely attractive uh, city. Uh, well, yeah, that's just <laughs> more incentive, yeah. <laughs> I love Bath. I, I um, of course, used to work with Bath Rugby for a number of years. And um, actually, I spent a bit of time at college down there too. And I, uh, yeah, I can say that those that know Bath will will know that that's the real reason why you were there. Um, so, um, you know, we're going to get into all, all sorts of stuff. And as the average um, listener or as the uh, regular listener knows to my podcast that I'm obsessed by the C word context um, and there's a reason for it and actually it was it was in in one of your lectures you did for us on the ISSN diploma last week where um, we were getting into into all things uh, breakfast um, and metabolism and, and so on and um, uh, we asked you a question uh, or, or it had more to do with what I think your colleagues response to the question that must drive you nuts when they find that that you guys are researchers in in breakfast at the time and and i'm just going to repeat it because i love the response because it is the ultimate teaching lesson in in context in this sort of area so um you know you know is breakfast really the most important meal of the day yeah well the the answer we usually give is um a question to the person who's asked us that question and it's um define breakfast and what do you mean by important? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's, it's surprisingly difficult to actually define breakfast even. It is. Um, it is. So if, if it's the first meal of the day, well, then if you don't eat until lunchtime, is that still lunch, lunch or is it breakfast? Yeah, you know, you know, it's interesting, Javier. When I work with my clients, I, I, I did find, of course, once you start naming a meal like breakfast, lunch, dinner... It, it you know it has interesting implications for the person it's not just necessarily a you know a time of day which actually they may or may not 
um, be doing, like the all-day breakfasts, for example, that you can see. But also it tends to um, influence what people choose. Whereas if you use the word feed, like I'm going to have a morning feed, a, um, a midday feed, evening feed, then that tends to have a different impact Abs on Absolutely. On people. Yeah, pe people have huge connotations with breakfast. So it's only really breakfast that we have what we call breakfast foods. It's Some people I know do snack on cereal later in the day, but we always think of cereals as breakfast foods. And we don't really think of lunch foods and dinner foods. They're more uh, changeable. And, and yeah, we, we definitely place a lot of emphasis on breakfast foods. And bre breakfast is, uh, I mean, it's a bit topical on social media, I've noticed, uh, which is actually not the reason why I decided to do this, this podcast. I think it, it's an important conversation um, for a number of reasons. The main one being is, um, you know, w one way or the other, we all eat or 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 feel we should be eating um, breakfast. And as we're going to discuss today, there may be implications um, to health, but there also may be implications to performance, either way, positive or, or negatively. So it is something that I think is important. And, and even in, you know, in our language, in it, you know, we have phrases like breakfast of champions. Um, yeah. And there are assumptions made as to the importance of this. But, you know, that's going to be what we're going to get into, Javier. So I think what we should do um, is just go back to some some basic, um, you know, physiology and metabolism um, that will help underpin some of the things that we're going to discuss, just, just so that we're all mindful of the bigger picture, the things that are important when we do talk about um, whether or not things like breakfast are important for body composition. So, um, you know, I, I, think, I think we would be best served by discussing energy balance. So perhaps you could explain to us what is energy balance, why it's important, and actually how we even measure it. Sure. So energy balance, as, as most people are probably aware, is um, the balance between energy intake, so that's the food we ingest and the energy we derive from that, and then our energy expenditure. So on the energy intake side, we've got energy which is provided by carbohydrates, protein, fats, and then for some people more than others, alcohol can also provide some energy. On the other side of the equation, we've got energy expenditure. Now that's comprised of our resting metabolic rate, so that's the amount of energy that we're burning just to essentially keep our bodies alive if we don't do any activity. We've then got the thermic effect of feeding, so that's the energy that we invest into digesting and metabolizing food in order to then derive the energy from it. And different foods have different uh, thermic effects, so protein for example has the highest thermic effect. So it'll raise your metabolic rate more than other macronutrients. Then there's the physical activity energy expenditure. And this used to be the hardest part to measure. So we used to just ask people questionnaires and, and get them to gauge roughly um, by self-report how, how physically active they thought they were. But that's really inaccurate um, due to numerous factors. E even when people are trying to be as honest as possible, we're not very good at reporting how physically active we are. But um, one of my colleagues here at Bath, um, Dr. Professor Dylan Thompson, uh, almost 10 years ago now, he, um, he published a paper showing a new method that was particularly good at measuring physical activity energy expenditure. And what it does is it combines heart rate measurements with measurements of movement, so accelerometry, and using a branch uh, equation model, you can 
essentially estimate energy expenditure under free living conditions. So we place these monitors on people and they can walk around around their house or, or do various different tasks. And this can pick up um, tasks that you couldn't pick up with a self-report measure. People can't remember, um, say, getting up and, and walking to their printer at work, however many times they do that in a day. Whereas this is precisely measuring all of those components. Yeah, let me um, just, 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 I know there's quite a lot to this topic, but one of yeah. the things that I think is worth just quickly getting into is, um, you know, this this issue that, that obviously people at home don't necessarily have access to, you know, the more extreme ends of this, you know, doubly labelled water type methods or even um, some of these gadgets that we're discussing here. Although, of course, there are versions of these things in people's um, smartphones and other, you know, wearable devices that, that can help them. But one makes the assumption that, um, you know, we all have similar needs. And one thing that we've explored in this podcast a lot, um, and, and the listeners will be familiar with me saying this all the time, is this, this idea of um, variability between people, inter-individual variability. Could you just quickly tell us about that? Because people do, you know, they, they might use their their apps or some chart on you know in a book or the internet and assume that for their height and weight they need x amount of calories and you know times it by an activity level well actually that that's could potentially be very inaccurate absolutely yeah yeah so um over the last decade or so um professor thompson's used this device and studied hundreds and hundreds of men and women in terms of their energy expenditure and he looked at their resting metabolic rate their dietary-induced thermogenesis, and their physical activity energy expenditure. And you see a huge variation between people. So he's, he's presented this before, and you might get someone who only expends around 2,000 kilocalories of energy per day, and you can get other people at the other extreme of 4,500 kilocalories of energy expenditure per day. And you can look at what's accounting for that. Is it the person who's expending a lot of energy? Is that because they've got a higher resting metabolic rate? Or is it some other factor? And it seems that resting metabolic rate is remarkably similar across people. And we can predict that based on their body mass. So the heavier someone is, then the higher their resting metabolic rate. Dietary-induced thermogenesis, again, is really predictable by people, the types of food people eat and the amount of food people eat. But the thing that really explains the differences between people is their physical activity energy expenditure. And that's not necessarily the exercise that they do. So they might only expend uh, 100 to 500 kilocalories per day in exercise, but they could expend a vast amount more, well over double that, in terms of physical activity that they're not even aware of. So the non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Yeah, I you know, I, I think, and that's one thing that I found particularly interesting from your lecture, and it's, it's stuff that I've heard about and read about before, but it's not until you really think about it. You know, again, I, I don't want to um, make people groan when I say context again, but when you think about exercise uh, in the context of a day, so, you know, we're, we're, a day is 24 hours, a workout session might be, an hour but of course if you if you observe anyone in a gym you know they're not working out for an hour they're spending half the time looking in the mirror (laughs) on the phone uh talking to people in fact it's a very small portion of that exercise session is really exercise but anyway if we get aside from that there's all these things that we do like you and i talking typing getting up and down 
fidgeting, um, walking upstairs. These are all things that we don't really consider, do we? Yeah, absolutely. And, and they, that can really account for perhaps health differences and, and body composition differences between people. It is a substantial impact on energy balance. And moreover, we, we can modify that. So there are, there is a suggestion that what we eat and when we eat can actually influence how physically active we are. Yeah, that's the bit that I find really interesting. You know, and, and we've heard terms like... Um, you know, nutrient timing, uh, which we've discussed uh, in various ways in this podcast. We've talked about nutritional periodization. But of course, this is another area where the timing of what you eat and the implications that that can have yep. from this side of things, I think, is pretty mind boggling. And as you, you know, as you say, it's damn difficult to measure these things. But now technology is starting to become more available we're starting to get a sneak peek and and this this undoubtedly is an area that i think is particularly exciting for researchers which is obviously yeah. one of the reasons why why you've got into this yeah I, I think it's really important because a lot of people start to question energy balance and it, it's understandable that they question it because you hear of people who struggle to gain weight or struggle to lose weight and there are cases where People will say, oh, I've, I've reduced the amount of food I'm, eat, um, I'm eating and I'm not able to lose weight. Uh, and then they'll say, oh, and then I increased my food intake and I suddenly started losing weight. But you can't really understand what's going on until you measure all components of energy balance. There, there are examples of scientific studies where they've overfed people a, a thousand kilocalories per day for eight weeks. And... Not everyone gains a huge amount of fat mass. Some, some of those people, in, in spite of eating a thousand kilocalories a day in excess of re their requirements, they only end up putting on about 200 grams of fat. And it's not until you start looking at where that energy is going that you understand that energy balance does hold true. And the fact is that these people end up increasing their physical activity energy expenditure without even realizing it. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, you know, when you start to think about it, the complexity of this is mind-boggling. And I, I guess one problem, and I've been guilty of this, um, you know, in the years where I've, I've not understood this deep enough, where it's been an oversimplification where it's just energy in versus energy out. It's the whole calories in, calories out concept. And as people that have listened to this podcast will know, um, I've done a few podcasts on this and you know, I mean, my general view of it is it becomes a bit difficult to explain this in terms of simply calories because we don't eat calories, we eat food. And yeah. and and as you made a point in your lecture, uh, which in fact you can expand upon in a second, is there is a huge difference between what we see in the lab and what we see in a free living situation. Um, in fact, perhaps can you, I know you've just delved into this, but yeah. could you just make it quite explicit what, you know, why it's important to differentiate what we see in the lab and a free living situation? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, we, we actually, it's important to, to measure both, I think. And, and we always try to study something within the lab and under free living conditions and, and test um, the theory in multiple different ways. So in terms of the breakfast work, um, I started studying this probably four years ago now when I was up in Newcastle and most of my work there was in the laboratory and uh, at, at about the same time um, my now colleague James Betts had 
realized the same thing. We, we both started studying breakfast in the context of energy balance, but he was combining this within lab measurement with a free living condition. And that's where you can start to see some of the effects on physical activity, for example, because in the lab, you're studying energy balance, but you're keeping people in a bed, essentially. Um, you're not letting them live their free life where actually you can see some effects of, of your intervention, be it eating breakfast or fasting or, or whatever else it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, sh yeah. I should probably also say that um, the reason we, we kind of got interested in breakfast is, like you say, a lot of people have preconceptions around breakfast, but most of this isn't based on strong evidence. So even the government still advise people who are overweight or obese to regularly eat breakfast to regulate their body fat content. Mm. But uh, all of this is based on cross-sectional evidence. So that is, people who regularly consume breakfast are less likely to be overweight or obese than people who don't regularly consume breakfast. But people who regularly consume breakfast also have so many other um, healthy parts of their lifestyle. So they're, they're more likely to be physically active, they're more likely to smoke less, they're more likely to not drink so much alcohol. So we don't really know until you perform a proper randomized controlled trial whether breakfast actually causes the less likelihood of being overweight or obese. Yeah, well, that's the, co I mean, that is the problem, isn't it, is this business between correlation and causation. And of course, proving something is causal you know this whole causality issue is a, is a difficult one so you know on a basic level what people are doing particularly journalists are making assumptions um whereas it could be uh you know the, the other commonality is they're all wearing cotton underpants and socks so maybe yeah, yeah. maybe it's the cotton underpants and socks <laughs> exactly. that's actually the problem so folks you need to uh, you need to not wear. Maybe that's what the Scots. Maybe maybe that's what the Highlanders have uh, got going for them, is they don't wear underpants. <laughs> uh, I can hear Ke Kevin Tipton's probably listening in the background. I can see yeah. him uh, there. Uh, that's what's going on up there. Um, so it is true, and as you say, you know, people make an assumption. And as I said at the beginning, we've got this sort of idea that breakfast is essential and people will have an anxiety attack. Oh my God, I didn't have breakfast. You know, that, that sort of implies all sorts of potential disasters. But as you said, you know, we need to define what breakfast is and we need to define why it's important, which is essentially my whole context issue. So Let's discuss a couple of different scenarios and, and we'll initially relate this to energy balance then. So, you know, what's the relevance of breakfast to total daily energy balance um, without exercise? Yeah. So in the studies we've done in the lab, um, if we give people breakfast or we keep them fasted, and then we let them have a lunch and we let them eat as much as they like at lunchtime until they feel comfortably full, then they eat the same amount or a similar amount at lunchtime, regardless of whether they have had breakfast or they've remained fasted throughout the morning. And that's in spite of them actually reporting feeling hungrier when they've remained fasted. So if you ask them to report how hungry they are, they say they feel hungrier, yet when you present them with a meal, they don't end up eating anymore. But if you then look at superimpose the breakfast that they've eaten on top of that energy intake, so obviously they've consumed energy at breakfast and then at lunchtime, then that puts them um, at significantly greater energy intake relative to fasting. 
And that seems to also translate if you look at free living conditions. So when this has been translated out of, into six weeks of free living and you ask people to consume breakfast um, every morning relative to fasting until midday every single day for six weeks, then people in terms of their energy intake don't compensate for having had breakfast. So they eat a similar amount of food over the rest of the day, which means that by having breakfast, you end up eating more overall. So... One thing that comes up a lot and, you know, I think what you've just described there is absolutely fascinating because that kind of goes against what some people think. But um, is also th this idea that you must have breakfast because if you don't have breakfast, your, your blood sugar is going to be a disaster for the rest of the day. Um, but actually, w now that you guys and others have researched this, I mean, what is the relevance of breakfast to blood sugar yeah so um there is a, a phenomenon which is called the second meal effect and actually that's been known to occur uh, for almost a century now and what that describes is that if you um, have a high carbohydrate meal then your response to carbohydrate later in the day is better in terms of your glucose control so if you remain fasted in the morning and then you have your lunch, then your glucose control in response to that lunch is worse than if you'd had breakfast before that. So we've now extended that and uh, we've replicated it with more realistic meals. Um, and it also seems to work in the real world. So if you fit people with these continuous glucose monitors, which they sample the glucose concentration just under your skin uh, every five minutes, 24 hours a day, then you can see that this effect still persists in free living conditions. So in the afternoon, people's glucose control is better if they've had breakfast. Now, part of this might be because they're also more physically active. So some of the work that my colleague's done, um, Dr. Betts has shown that if people eat breakfast, then they choose to be more physically active. And that seems to be subconscious. So we, again, with these devices we can use, we can actually look at how intense they are in terms of their physical activity and when they're performing it. And it seems that when people have breakfast, they are then more physically active in the morning relative to if they remained fasting. And it seems to be light intensity physical activity. Now we know that exercise is good for us and it may be partially explaining this glucose control. But it also occurs if you keep people in a bed, so it's not the sole reason. But it's interesting that breakfast seems to increase our physical activity, and it's more our light intensity physical activity, and it also improves our glucose control later in the day. And we can say this this isn't an association, like you we were saying earlier on, this is a causal effect of breakfast. Yeah, so it's got nothing to do with what underpants they're wearing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so yeah. what about, though, because another concept that you'll hear that's a popular issue um, is, you know, uh, it's what you eat for breakfast then. So, you know, the, the one would like to think that there is a difference, surely, between some um, sort of uh, more standard uh, cereal type based breakfast or maybe, um, you know, more of your low carb, uh, which is all popular nowadays, more of a higher protein, potentially higher fat but lower carbohydrate breakfast. Is there any relevance to that that you think? Yeah, so um, yeah, certainly what 
type of breakfast you have will influence the glucose control aspect. We know very much less about the physical activity and, we, and we'd love to do more work in that area. But in terms of glucose control, if the breakfast is either high in carbohydrates or high in protein, then you seem to get this benefit on glucose control later in the day. And more so if there's some fiber in there too. But if it's high in fat and low in carbohydrate, then that actually seems to impair glucose control later in the day. Mm. So um, the typical breakfast foods being cereal and milk seem to be optimal for this type of effect. And and then, of course, Javier, you know, there is this idea of, well, what if I don't have breakfast at all? Now, um, you know, there's a popularity in the whole fasting um, intermittent fasting there's variations on these strategies and um, if we control for the amount of calories that are consumed in a day so in a, in effect what happens is although they're not eating at breakfast time but they're still eating over three or four meals let's say throughout the rest of the day but they're still having you know the correct amount of calories um, I won't go into macronutrients and all that but simply maybe altering the timing of those meals so that there's a bit of a bigger gap between waking um, and their first meal. Is there um, any significance to that situation that you feel is worth discussing? In terms of energy balance, if so if all you've altered is the timing with which you eat and yet you've controlled energy balance, so both energy in and energy expenditure, then there will should be no difference in body mass or body composition. So the reason we see changes is because there has been some compensation in some aspects of energy balance. So if you've altered time, meal timing and then either you're more or less physically active or um, you increase or decrease the amount of food that you're eating, then that will have implications for body composition. But if you hold all of those constant, then it won't. Yeah, and I, I, there's going to be a certain element of people's own individual responses. And, and and I think what's extremely important that no one ever talks about in this situation is actual preferences. You know, what do you actually prefer to do? But not demonizing this concept of missing breakfast, because ultimately, if you do eat the right amount of food over a reasonable number of, of feedings throughout the rest of the day, even if that starts mid to late morning, I mean, it's from a nutritional perspective of intake of vitamins and minerals and intake of, you know, correct protein and fiber, I mean, we're just fine, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, that's right. It, it may be a case of if you, if you like consuming breakfast, then great, you can... Uh, be aware that you're probably going to be more physically active, and that's a good thing. Mm. If you if you prefer to remain fasted, then maybe it's probably best to just think, oh, well, I'll probably feel a little bit more lazy in the morning, and you can maybe offset that. And, it, and that then gets us into the realm of perhaps, what if people are, are regular exercisers mm. and they like to consume breakfast or don't and that and that's a completely different issue well that's the okay so that was a expert segue so you know obviously my interests are in performance nutrition and exercise physiology so um to bring this back into the appropriate context particularly for those that listen who are um in the vast majority themselves um, highly active will certainly work with active people and we've, we've definitely discussed in the past um, all sorts of angles of um, you know uh, nutrition as it relates to performance we've definitely 
had some very interesting discussions with a variety of experts in uh, training low carb, um, you know, uh, sufficient carbohydrates. We've talked about, you know, the train low, train high and all that stuff. Um, but as it relates to breakfast, since we're on a breakfast thing here, let's talk about breakfast and, and exercise specifically. Um, obviously, you know, the food um, plays a role in the health and maintenance of the body. Food plays a role in um, supporting the, the needs of the body as it relates to adaptations to exercise. But of course, we do exercise for a variety of reasons. It might be to lose body fat. It might be to gain muscle mass. So um, obviously there's a breakfast before one might compete that day and there's timing of day is obviously relevant. So as, as, it, as breakfast relates to exercise, Javier, what, what, I mean, let's get into the significance of that and the impact that that has on the, you know, the physiology and metabolism um, of the performance itself. Yeah. So if um, you are an endurance athlete, for example, and you've got a competition, then without a doubt, uh, a high carbohydrate breakfast um, will be smart to ingest before exercise. There, there are going to be numerous benefits to, to having high carbohydrate availability before and during your exercise. It may be a little different if you're looking at the training of this person and, and what they want to achieve in terms of their adaptation and in terms of weight loss, for example, then that's a different goal. But certainly for for competition days, it would be smart to have a carbohydrate-rich breakfast. Yeah, and obviously, um, and also, actually, since we've discussed this business of training low carbohydrate, there are going to be scenarios where eating a breakfast, but not necessarily high in carbohydrate, may have an influence on a person's metabolism and the adaptations that they get from their training, right? Yeah, potentially. So um, there are studies showing that if you train after an overnight fast, then you can get some greater adaptations, mainly within the muscle, um, that would associate with typical endurance training. So if you take someone and you put them on an endurance training program, then they get certain adaptations, one of which is being able to store more muscle glycogen, so more of that carbohydrate stored in their muscle, which is a benefit to performance. Mm. And if they perform regular training in an overnight fasted state, then you seem to amplify that response a little bit. Uh, this is an area we're, we're looking to do more work in. Um, most of our work has been in the acute responses to exercise, either with or without breakfast. So, Javier, when, uh, just because I don't want to forget it, which is why I'm going to ask you about this now, um, people will refer to the importance of eating breakfast to stimulate metabolism you know if you eat breakfast you're going to burn more energy for the rest of the day if you don't eat breakfast your metabolism is going to slow down now i know that you've kind of gotten into this earlier in the podcast but i just so we can directly confront that myth perhaps you could just quickly get into that yeah so uh breakfast clearly will increase your energy expenditure ever so slightly, but that's solely due to the thermic effect of feeding. And it's relatively small. So we can predict that if you eat food, your metabolic rate will rise slightly, but you've ingested food. So your the, the net effect on energy balance is positive. So you put yourself in a positive energy balance for that small time period with a, then a propensity to 
to gain weight if that positive energy balance continues. Now, obviously, if you're then physically active in the rest of the day, you can counter that. But certainly, breakfast doesn't stimulate metabolism in a chronic sense. When uh, my colleague conducted the, a longer-term study, there was no a very small effect or no effect in terms of a chronic effect on on this breakfast stimulating metabolism. Yeah. So, and also, um, uh, you know, I, I'm interested in things like fat oxidation uh, only because I measure it in my own lab. But of course, when we look at fat oxidation studies, uh, whether it's methods of training or in this case, whether a type of meal increases or decreases fat oxidation, it's it's an acute response that we're looking at, and it's only in the context of the time period in which we actually studied it, i.e. the minutes or hours that surround the training or the diet. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because you also see, and again, it's the sort of thing that does its rounds in social media, but whether you're a research scientist or a coach, um, you know, or an athlete or just a general member of the public, this is relevant to, to all of us, This what I'm about to say. And that is that you will hear people discussing this idea of eating a certain type of breakfast because it switches on fat burning for the rest of the day. So, you know, yeah. like, do you have um, do you have steak and, you know, a handful of nuts for breakfast because you're going to burn fat for the rest of the day? And you shouldn't have carbs because that... Um, you know, it increases uh, carbohydrate oxidation and, you know, therefore you're just going to burn carbs for the rest of the day. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so so there aren't, probably aren't any foods that um, actually stimulate fat oxidation, at least acutely. Mm. So what happens is that you can suppress fat oxidation and that's mainly with carbohydrate, as, as you correctly stated. So most breakfasts are carbohydrate rich and if you feed people a, a porridge based breakfast as we've done in most of our studies then you ask them to perform a bout of exercise um, this is kind of moderate uh, running or cycling then the amount of fat that they'll burn during that session will be 20 to 30 percent less if they've consumed breakfast relative to fasting now if that breakfast didn't contain carbohydrate in there you probably wouldn't see the suppression of fat oxidation um, I know there's been some confusion probably recently with uh, a recent television program suggesting that there are male-female differences in this. But if you if you look at the literature, um, and some of these studies are, are by friends and colleagues of ours, so Gareth Wallace at, at Birmingham has done quite a lot of work on male-female differences uh, with fasted and fed exercise. And it, it's very clear that both men and women if they ingest carbohydrates, will suppress the amount of fat that they're using during exercise. Now, the, the size of the effects may differ, but certainly if you want to burn more fat during exercise, then performing in a fasted state is, is an optimal condition. Yes, I, I would have preferred that those sorts of television shows said, trust me, I'm a research scientist with um, <laughs> hundreds of publications in the peer-reviewed literature is what they should have said. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or yeah. even even as uh, some of our students have heard us say, don't don't even trust a word we say. Just just trust the evidence and, and make a decision for yourself. So, mm. yeah, don't trust anyone in authority. Not not that I should sound uh, uh, like I'm believe in um, the government controlling us or anything. Um, yeah, I really <laughs> make up their own decision. And I think Kevin Tipton will, uh, will support me on this. He's a real advocate of people being able to critically analyze the literature 
Yes, well, we've done, um, well, Ke- Kevin Tipton and um, Ian LaHart and others, even Dwayne Miller. Uh, we- we've gotten a hell of a lot into, you know, critical appraisal of literature and evidence. And I mean, that's a whole, that I mean, that's a whole area. Obviously, you know, in, in graduate program, that's, you know, that's a whole module research methods. And it- it's a difficult one. But that is why I like to do this podcast, because even... Even really strong quality evidence, you know, produced by quality researchers in really good peer-reviewed journals, uh, it can still be taken out of context, and that's why yeah. you know we can have an hour's conversation about defining breakfast and defining yeah. important because it, you know, it depends. It yeah. really does depend on what we mean, and and you know, who's the individual even talking about? What are their goals? What are they trying to do? What actually are their preferences? It's not this sort of rule that. Everyone must have breakfast because suddenly there's going to be, you know, a, a total epidemic of diabetes because people aren't eating breakfast. Yeah. Um, so speaking of which, so let's get back to glucose control a bit. Um, there's a big difference between talking about this context, of course, um, in populations of people that don't exercise as compared to those that do. So what is the what is what is it that exercise modifies or what is it that exercise has to do with this side of the story? Yeah. So um with breakfast in relation to people performing exercise, then um there's quite a confusing picture in, in the post exercise period. Um, so normally we think that well we, we know that exercise has benefits for glucose control. Certainly in the long term, but it may take some time for those effects to actually accumulate. Um, whilst if you perform a single bout of exercise, your glucose control will certainly be improved 24 hours after, but if you look at your glucose control immediately after that exercise bout, then it's not necessarily any better and it can actually be worse. And, and some of our previous work has suggested that if you have breakfast before that exercise, then that can make this effect even worse. So you have poorer glucose control immediately post-exercise. Now, we don't know much more about what happens longer term. There are some studies suggesting that if you train fasted, then your glucose control will improve more than if you have breakfast um, before every exercise session. Um, But this is, again, an area that that we're looking to pursue currently. And, And with glucose control, it then isn't so relevant to athletes because if they're training every day and if they're highly uh, aerobically fit, then it's very unlikely that they have poor glucose control. But in populations who are overweight or obese or sedentary, then that's where this becomes a little bit more important. And I think it's a really nice idea that if, if you can just manipulate the timing with which you eat and you can get further benefits out of the exercise that you're planning to do anyway, then that's a really nice message that you're, you're able to unlock some of the benefits that you'd un- otherwise not be able to, to get out of the exercise session. So, you know, when people start talking about this and, you know, we're talking about body composition, we're talking about whether breakfast is important, even what you're eating, you know, is it carbs or whatever. One way or the other, we, we come back to that well-known, uh, and bear with me as I say this, that well-known uh, terrorist uh, group IS. And by that, I mean insulin sensitivity (laughs) um insulin seems to be you know the scapegoat um and often the misunderstood 
um, even possible hero of the situation. You know, I mean, what is the relevance of of insulin here and and this breakfast conversation that we're having? Is it is it a big player, or or do you think that yeah. we're totally off on a random track here? It's uh, insulin is the probably the most important hormone in terms of metabolic regulation. So if you're looking at fat oxidation, for example, the reason, the main reason that you suppress your fat oxidation in response to eating is due to insulin. And that's why it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, if you produce insulin, um, then you'll suppress your fat, fat oxidation. Um, but that's not to say insulin is the bad guy at all. Uh, Insulin is absolutely necessary, and, and the real problem is if people are insulin resistant. If they're insulin resistant, then it means they store less of that their carbohydrate in their muscle. That can then lead to them converting the carbohydrate into fat, and we're then manipulating our, our energy balance and fat balance in a different way there. And, and people have shown that um, the, the first detectable defect in people who are at high risk of diabetes or cardiovascular disease is insulin resistance. So if we can remain insulin sensitive, so that by that I mean that for the same amount of insulin circulating around, you have greater physiological effects, so you have greater glucose uptake into the muscle, for example, then that, that's a good thing and you can uh, reduce your risk of developing cardiovascular disease and, and diabetes and so on. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And, you know, I've discussed insulin, insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity with a variety of people um, in this podcast over the past year. And it is a hugely context specific thing, again, because it, you know, it depends on a number of factors um you know the individual and and their own health and lifestyle whether they exercise or not obviously the activity of muscle mass how their body's muscle mass um you know utilizes uh, uh carbohydrates and um that may or may not provide some relief to um how the body is having to handle any um you know surplus carbohydrates that come into the body um, you know, as you've mentioned, uh, there might be some influence with um, timing or not. There's even some potential benefits to fasting. There's all sorts of stuff that's that's going on there. But bringing this conversation back to, you know, is breakfast important? Um, I mean, let's let's let let let's get back to a slightly more, in a nutshell, answer that isn't just about asking you know, uh, answering with a with a question. I mean, let's get back to that. Is breakfast important? Okay, so if if it to, if important for you means uh, losing fat mass or body weight, then at the moment, the evidence doesn't indicate that it's particularly important. But by looking at your total energy balance and how physically active you are relative to how much food you're ingesting, that can have a bigger effect in terms of losing weight than just eating breakfast or not eating breakfast. There, in terms of if, if glucose control is important to you, which it should be for most people, then it does seem that there are some benefits to ingesting breakfast. And then, and then, uh, obviously for for athletes. So for athletes, yeah, if. Um, if you're looking for training adaptation, then it might be smart to, to at least perform some of your sessions without breakfast, particularly for endurance athletes. Um, but if it's race day, 
then it, it makes sense to consume breakfast. So there you have it. Uh, I think we've gotten into all things breakfast. Um, you know, is, is breakfast the breakfast of champions? Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, it, it's a, it is such an interesting topic. And I felt that, you know, it was great. I mean, just, just to um, come back to another way of, of defining this, so to speak, is the title of your lecture, actually, that you gave us was Breakfast for Athletes advisable, inappropriate, or irrelevant. And I think that's a particularly good way, I guess, to leave this topic is, you know, you need to think. And I've taught my students, and hopefully the listeners to this podcast get this all the time from me, is that all this stuff that we get, this knowledge, the, the stuff you read from papers, the the tidbits, or the outcomes and conclusions you get from, from the researchers, from the experts, these are all tools that are in your toolbox and you need to identify what the tools are you need to identify how to use those tools you need to identify which is the right scenario to use those tools you need to identify when those tools aren't necessary or when they just you know like you said in your title just inappropriate or more importantly irrelevant it may not even be that important if someone's personal preference is to eat breakfast or if someone's personal preference is not to eat breakfast as long as you consider the things that we've discussed in the context of the bigger picture, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So, listen, um, it's been absolutely brilliant to have you on. Um, uh, you actually gave us some other lectures on uh, things like carbohydrates and its relevance to performance, which which we're going to have to get you back to do a podcast okay. on that one because that, really, that was really great. There's too much airtime being given to how evil carbs are, but um, not enough airtime's been given to how essential they are um, to performance. So we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. Um, but if people want to learn more about uh, you and what you're up to, how, how, can they, um, how can they find out more from you? I guess your Twitter would be a starting point. Um, so and, my Twitter handle is at Gonzalez underscore JT. Yeah. Uh, but... Um, there's also my email address, which is on the University of Bath website. People can have a look there and, and have a look at uh, the staff page and, and the uh, courses that we have to offer also. Brilliant. And you're on ResearchGate, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah what I'll do for folks is um, I'll add links to ResearchGate and University of Bath uh, uh, on um, the podcast uh, page because uh, we now have a page per podcast with appropriate resources. Also, uh, just quickly, if um, if folks want to actually come and uh, get educated by you, I know that you're involved in a number of programs and um, undergraduate and postgraduate programs in your department. Um, just out of interest, what, what are those programs? Yeah, so the undergraduate programs are sport and exercise science and uh, physical activity and health. And then I also teach on the master's programs, sport and exercise medicine and uh, sport and exercise physiotherapy. So yeah, great if anyone's interested. Yeah, that's brilliant. Of course, um, I, I, I cannot not plug uh, our own program. You've lectured for us, of course, yeah. this past week on the ISSN Diploma Postgraduate Program, which we filmed. So for those that aren't able to turn up to our uh, taught weekend lectures in London, we do have everything available by lecture video for those doing it online and distance learning. Um, you can learn about that at issndiploma.com. Um, you can also come and learn um, 
uh, sorry, and do the uh, MSc in Sports and Exercise Nutrition with me at Middlesex uh, University. Uh, you can also learn about that via Middlesex's uh, website or for all things relating to Guru Performance, uh, our education programs, our CPD programs, the ISSN Diploma and the Middlesex program, you can still get access to that via guruperformance.com, which is where you'll find all our podcasts. Uh, so once again, thanks Javier for your time. I uh, really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back again soon. And thanks, yeah, and uh, I of course am Laurel Bannock and look forward to bringing another podcast back to you very soon.